turn to have our Bible reading from Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, and in the Church Bibles it's on page 1182, and we're going to read from verse 3 to verse 13. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about it in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Over all the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. I'm sure your mind never gets distracted in church. Mine was for about one minute when I was sitting here and I was reminded on holiday I was reading a book that was called uh, Village Tales by a Country Parson. And uh, it was even song in a very rural part of Cumbria. And there weren't many people in the congregation. And he was going through the <coughs> book of prayer, common book of prayer. And uh, he was distracted because there was an allotment outside. And he saw a rather rotund lady bending he was leading worship and he kept seeing and she was pulling hard at a parsnip and finally she fell over on the board and he said I knew she would and then he went back to his prayer and I thought sometimes even the preacher gets distracted by lovely stories like that. well I, I was thinking of that because I could hear some noise inside I thought, yeah, not distracted at all Well, the theme is praying for others and the knowledge of God's will. That's what we are doing, that we might know God's will and be strengthened by it and through it. It's part of this uh, series through August, and uh, we are focusing on 
uh, verses 9 to 14 of our reading. And apart from one cross-reference, which you'll know anyway, we're confining ourselves to this passage. And therefore, if you keep your Bibles open, you'll be able to see how the sermon progresses through these verses. However, although we're looking at 9 to 14, a vital and an essential part of praying is not simply asking in faith. A vital part is thanksgiving. If our prayers are asking, 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 without giving thanks, then our praying is fundamentally flawed. One of the things we did Thursday evening in our prayer meeting was now, I said, before we pray, as we remain standing, singing this song, can we stand and give thanks to God for his goodness to us? Later on we will get down to the business of intercession. And, and there's something very important about that. So although we're thinking about praying, a vital, integral part of praying is thanksgiving. Take our Lord's Prayer, for example. Before the petitions... Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. It begins with worship and thanksgiving. There is a, there has got to be a balance between praise and petition. You see, and the reason I'm saying that in, in verse 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul, what does he do? We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. So we pray for you with thanksgiving. And the reason, because, verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the love that you have one for another, that is expressed in tangible ways, not merely in a sentimental way. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, and so on. And this wonderful trinity, trinity of faith, hope and love that's a vital part of the Christian life. With that in mind then, it is, it is a necessary qualification that prayer without thanksgiving is a bit like a, a, a bird with a broken wing. It will always struggle. And our perspective will be impaired. We won't see clearly. Indeed, it can almost be a form of indulgence, can't it? I, me, my praying can blight our lives when there's a world of need out there and when we think of God's bountiful provision for us, thanksgiving ought to be a feature of our lives. Impaired vision, I, uh, as you know, we rushed back from the wedding in the Lake District to catch the last flight from Luton to fly into Belfast and uh, attention to detail would help I send the people who picks up to the wrong airport. That was very helpful. So we arrived one o'clock in the morning, um, and I lost my glasses. I had to take a dark suit, which uh, got a shallow pocket, bent down to tie my shoelaces. The reason to tie my shoelaces was I was wearing heavy black brogues because uh, uh, I untied my shoelaces for the flight. And in the course of it, lost my spectacles. I phoned up, and uh, somebody said, spectacles have been returned, but they're mangled. And uh, therein is a story. But a person with impaired vision isn't helpful. Particularly if you anticipate having to read or take part uh, in, in the service. The knowledge of God's will, then, is this. 
that praying for one another, that we might have a settled conviction in our lives that this is God's will for us. And we're not complicated and screwed up about so many things. So the prayer for the church at Colossae, or the church at Longcrendon, if you like, verses 9 to 14, is where we are going to map out the rest of our time. Now notice that the prayer in the New Testament is very interesting. And indeed it's salutary. It, it teaches us so much. It's challenging in this sense, that it is so often different from my prayer, at least. Do I wait... Am I the sort of person who waits until tragedy strikes? And then I get down to serious praying. Do I wait until I hear some serious uh, risk to life or medical diagnosis that looks serious? Then I get down to pray. Is it when my life is falling apart? Or is there, a, is there a rhythm in my life, in joy and in sorrow, in prosperity and need, that, that there's a sense of staying in step with the Spirit? Well, that's the challenge. And C.S. Lewis has something very wonderful to say. Listen how he struggles with this. He says this, and it's in his book called The Problem of Pain. He's so honest, almost incredibly honest. I quote, I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contented, and godless condition. Absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for tomorrow, a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday, a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or the headlines in the newspaper that threatens us with destruction, sends the whole pack of cards tumbling down. First, I am overwhelmed. And all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then, slowly, reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart that my true good is actually in another world. And my only real treasure is in Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed. And for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right source. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. Such is human nature. And the point is about praying for one another. We don't wait until we're in the crisis of the horn or the dilemma. But that there would be that wonderful rhythm of prayer that should be the hallmark of our lives. Don't wait until tragedy strikes or that we have to go to the hospital or our relationships are threadbare or our marriage is in trouble. How different then is this New Testament prayer? And I just want us now to look on three things that Paul prays for that are linked with the knowledge of God's will. So there are three essentials uh, that come out of this prayer. The first is knowledge itself. He prays that they might have knowledge. Then he prays that they might have holiness. And thirdly, that they might have power. Those three things is the sermon. 
There it is. First of all then, that they might have knowledge. Look at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, and we have not stopped praying for you, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I never forget about ten years ago, um, somebody spoke to me at the door, and I was due to go on sabbatical and speak at a Wycliffe conference. And uh, this person said to me, looked me in the eye and said, I promise that I will pray for you every day. I promise. I won't pray for you all my life or yours, however long or short that will be. But for the next three weeks, I do promise that I will pray for you every day. Now, I was very challenged by that for at least two reasons. The first is, I've never said that like that to anybody else, and maybe I should. And nobody has ever said that to me in that specific way. We promise to pray, we can work at prayer, but there are so many things that come in and hem us in, and somehow we don't get around to it. It's a very challenging thing to do that. And if we do, it's a good thing and it's a very humbling thing that we carry it out. So from verse 9, notice it's not secretive. There was a teaching called Gnosticism, a superior knowledge. There were people who looked down on others. It's not exclusive. It's not super spiritual. Sometimes we almost recoil at some people's so-called spirituality. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says this, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea, the neighbouring church. A bit like, if you like, Long Crendon and Tain. Two churches near each other. My purpose, look at verse 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. Namely, what is the mystery? The open mystery, it's Christ. John Stott says this. He says, the repetition of these words, knowledge, wisdom, discernment, understanding, in all of Paul's prayers, is surely very striking. There can be no doubt that the Apostle regarded these as, as the very foundation of the Christian life. And what is this knowledge? Is it, uh, should I change my car? Should I move house? Should I change my job? Should I get married? Should I get engaged? Should I retire? Well, sort of, but Paul's got a bigger picture here. Those things are clearly important. Whether I have a new job or, and all of that. But it, it can almost become self-centered. The knowledge of God's will is that we might know Christ and make him know. And that, in a sense, is the raison d'etre of us being here. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God, the psalmist says. The knowledge of God's will. And so Paul links it together. This is our only reference which you hardly need to turn to. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, therefore, in the light of God's mercy, commit yourselves to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. 
And the knowledge of God is a very practical thing, a very powerful thing in my life. It isn't, and you get this sometimes with people, it isn't to make you clever. It doesn't pray that they might have knowledge that one person will be more clever than another, or that you can win the arguments. It isn't. Actually, it is that you might be clear that people will understand you. And they'll begin to say, yes, I can understand that. And you leave them with an impression that Jesus is real. That is the knowledge of his will. Secondly, that they might be holy. Now, this is a bit tricky. When I was brought up, holiness, for me at least, with my background, had a very negative um, application. It was the things that you don't do. First time ever in my life, I was six years of age, I went to the cinema to see 101 Dalmatians in black and white. And you know what my father said to me? And I love my father. He's still alive. He said, he didn't like me going there. He said, you're going to the cinema. And what if the Lord comes? And all through. Well, you know what I mean. In other words, he, he believed that Christians don't go to the cinema. That, that Christians don't go to certain places. Now, in a sense, that's fair enough. But is that, is that holiness... And it was often seen in a negative way. And cumulatively, it makes people react and they become more worldly. I know people have been brought up in such strict families that now they are thoroughly ungodly that the pendulum has swung so far the other way. So, let's think about this then. That they might be holy. Look at verse 10. What is this prayer? And we pray that in, or, that in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. There it is again, knowledge. It's a big theme here, isn't it? It's not negative then, but it is something wonderfully attractive. And, and, and it's not so much about what you don't do, it's what you do do. It's about living. You see it? That you might live a life worthy of the Lord. Not what you don't do. And the danger is that we can get a form of holiness that is entirely negative. A life worthy of the Lord that is attractive. That it is, if you like, in harmony with other people. That people are not recoiled by our religion or our holiness. Here's another interesting thing about holiness as well. It, it, we are to be in harmony with his people and that disunity is unworthy and ultimately a lack of holiness. Unholy and unfruitful as you have it in verse 10. Now, let me put it to you like this. You and I, as Christian people, I trust that we are, will never be godly by accident. Never. And there is this constant Cutting away, pruning, adjusting, so that we might be more fruitful. It almost seems a contradiction. And yet it's the way to greater fruitfulness. 
there's a quote going to come up before you from Packer, Jim Packer. And uh, there it is. Just, just look at this. I think this is so helpful uh, from his book called A Passion for Holiness. Try, to, try just to take this in for a moment to see what we're talking about. I think this is one of the best summaries, and I've, I've shortened it because uh, Packer can be very wordy in, in many ways. Here it is. Holiness is a matter of both action and motivation, conduct and character, divine grace and human effort. Trouble is, so often, it's an either-or. It's not. It's both and much more. Obedience and creativity Submission and initiative, consecration to God, and commitment to his people, and that can be very challenging. Self-discipline and self-giving, righteousness and love. Sometimes some people's righteousness only gives you a sense of inferiority. It is a matter of patient, persistent uprightness of taking God's side against sin in our lives. So much of the holiness that I was brought up with was taking God's side against other people's lives. What am I like before I can, in any sense, comment on other people? A single-minded, wholehearted, free and glad consecration on the business of pleasing God. Now that's holiness. And that is God's will for us. And it will never happen by accident. The thing is, we can be almost a, a glaring contradiction of what we preach. I, at the children's talk about three weeks, two weeks ago, uh, I used this. This is a slogan. Millions of these have been produced. Every home in Britain's had one. And, and of course, you're familiar with, with the slogan, catch it, bin it, kill it. Well, I was reading in the paper last week that this man, who is the actor, was paid to do this. Would you believe it? He's got swine flu. Isn't that amazing? The very one who's advocating, don't do this, don't do that, gets it. We can be like that. The very things, we're talking about holiness, and we can go out and live an unholy life. Easy. Preach on it, and yet contradict it. So easy. That's a glaring contradiction. And, and, and we can be like that spiritually. And, and this holiness is something very humbling and attractive. And it's God's will for us. But where does holiness lead is it just about me? No, it doesn't. It isn't. It, it's, it's about growing. It's about growing. Look in verse 10 again. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, a godly life, may please him in every way. Look at this then. Bearing fruit in every good work. Oh yes, we're good. We're not saved by works. For sure we can't be saved without them. How else can the world see Growing in the knowledge of God. So where does it lead? It leads to growth. It leads to fruit bearing. It's a good year for plants. If you've got a plum tree in your garden, you'll know. Yesterday I was high up the plum tree. Catching clusters of plums. And as I was reaching out to this big cluster, I had a bee sting. Because there was a bee right in the plum and I grabbed it. And I yelled with pain and held on in case I should tumbling down. So even the, the attempts that we have to enjoy fruitfulness is fraught by the fall and by the imperfection and, and the prevailing sinfulness of creation as well as ourselves. 
So here a radical, world-engaging, servant-hearted vision. That is what holiness is about. Not to escape from the world, no. But to engage with it. So much of holiness was, come out and be separate. No. Be committed to the Lord and stay in. And be salt where there is corruption. Be light where there is darkness. That is the point. And that's a bigger challenge. A much bigger challenge. Salt and light. The fruit of the Spirit. And you see, just to go back to verse 6 to 8. Look at this. Here is Epaphros. And he's a good role model. I'd like to be like him. Just look, look in verse, uh, verse 6. All over the world... This gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it, it has been doing among you since the day you heard of it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from... How do you learn it? Well, it was Epaphras. He's a good role model. On the catwalk of life, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the Spirit, This is the prayer that we to live it out, live it out, live it out. And lastly, he prays that they might have knowledge, not that they might be clever, but they might be clear, not that they might win arguments, but they might give people an impression of the living, real Jesus, who is alive, who is risen from the dead, that they might be holy in the world, and yet, godly, that is a great challenge. And finally, that they might experience power. You can't do this in your strength. So look at these last verses. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light and so on. Well, what can we say here? That they might experience power. Power. It is the stamina of the marathon. It's not the sprint. The stamina of the marathon. And if you talk to people who have done marathons, they will tell you that various times you hit, and you can't define it, you hit this pain barrier. It's intangible, of course, but it's there. And it's not just your physical endurance, but it's your mind as well. And there's this conflict between mind and the, and, and, and the, physic, and the physical side, and you're struggling. And then you get through that, and you get a new energy. Where does it come from? Well, this whole idea of endurance to break through the pain barrier, to finish. But this power is uniquely God-given. It's not just that some people, some people clearly have a predisposition to being fit and to running marathons. It's not this. This is not our natural ability. We, we actually may be very weak. We, we may really feel that we are inadequate. We may think that as Christians, we're not doing very well. We might feel terribly guilty. But you see, you have to say over all of that, but God. Because it isn't really you 
your strength, your guilt. It's God's strength, God's grace. That's the point. And he is sufficient. And he is the sovereign Lord. And he knows anyway about our frailty and our weaknesses. Sometimes we seem to praise. If he doesn't know, he does. And he still loves us. And that's amazing too. So we may be weak and frail. And we do mess up so often. But you know, there's something else here. This idea of power, of staying power, if you like, stands in sharp contrast to the prevailing culture. I don't know what the, the, the Colossian culture was like, but think of the hours today. It's short term. Keep your options open. It's a quick fix. And, and so much is superficial on the surface. What one book called the McDonaldization of the church. We keep everything on a superficial level. It's quick, it's slick, it's smooth. But that's not power. That's not power. And you, you see verses 12, 11 to 12. The purpose of this power, and may I say this, it's almost like an anticlimax. You say the purpose of power is to turn the world upside down. Well, what is this? What is it? Well, interestingly, we are told in very specific terms, this apparent anticlimax. What is the purpose of this power? And it's twofold. Endurance and patience. There's a thing. Endurance and patience. He says, I pray that you might have power according to his glorious might so that you may have that is great endurance and patience. Well, how much, how, how strong is your endurance? How long is your patience? Or do you have a short fuse in given situations? Well, it's not really an anticlimax. It's how we sustain our relationships. Now, I pose a question to you. What's the difference in your view? Or is it merely semantics? And I don't think it is. What's the difference between endurance and patience? Is Paul just saying the same thing? No, he isn't. And, and I think this is um, quite helpful if it comes up before you. There it is. Endurance is in response to our circumstances. Now, I guarantee I don't need, need to be a prof have prophetic insight to say there are situations that you are in, at work, in your family, with your children, grandchildren, and so on, where you need endurance. That the best thing that you can do at this time is just to hang in there. You need endurance because of circumstances outside of your control. If you are a control freak, it's even worse. You can do nothing about it. Endurance in response to our circumstances. However, patience is in response to people. If you're going to, if you're going to be involved with people, you'll need patience. Some will hurt you badly. Christian people, whether they intend to or not, God knows, but they will. What they say, what they do. And you will need patience because God loves you and you love them. And sometimes you've done the same thing anyway. You need patience in response to people. You do. And you need endurance in response to circumstances. Now that's what Paul's praying for. How extraordinary. 
These, if you like, are not passive qualities. They are active qualities. It's not stoicism. Just grin and bear it and, and put on a smile when you're hurting inside. It's not that. It is about the Saviour, Jesus, who is real, who is with us in all of our experiences. And this is to pray in the knowledge of his will. Endurance and patience and finally they are linked to being, what a surprise, to being joyful and thankful. And that makes the full circle of what it is to pray for others. The knowledge of God. You wouldn't normally equate these two, would you? Endurance and patience and link them to joy and thanksgiving. But they do. Because that's what you have in this prayer. That they should have endurance and patience, the end of verse 11, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we are redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that is a cause of great joy and great thanksgiving. And that is the continuity of the spirit-filled life. I hope as a result of this sermon, somehow, in some measure, that our endurance, our patience, will be deepened and strengthened and stretched without breaking. So we pray that you may have knowledge, that you may be holy, sweet, attractive holiness, that points to Jesus. That you may experience power to sustain this. And in the most difficult situation. To prove that his grace is sufficient. We're going to sing our final hymn together. And I challenge you um, with this. And if you want to take copies of this uh, home. To, to look at. Uh, I often use this as a, as, as a prayer. It's, it's immensely challenging. Uh, and that's how we started the service and that's how we closed by having these hymns that are themselves prayers. Deep, profound and life-changing. And so this that came out of Bonhoeffer's prison experience that he says, Yet are our hearts by their old fort tormented? Still evil days bring burdens hard there. Oh, give our frightened souls the sure salvation for which, O oh Lord, you taught us to prepare. So that when these things come, we don't engage in a mega whinge that we know that our praying is strengthening us for days that are to come. And with quiet confidence, prove that God is real. This is a very humbling perhaps one of the greatest that you could sing. So let's stand and sing it together.